A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. På söndag är det avspark i ett av tidernas mest omdiskuterade och ifrågasatta VM i fotboll. Det som ska spelas i Qatar. Bonita Merciades jobbade för Australiens VM-kampanj när man kämpade mot Ryssland och Qatar och en del andra länder om att få arrangera VM 2018 och 2022. Och hon skrev sedan den avslöjande boken Whatever It Takes. I maj 2018 poddintervjuade jag Bonita Merciades och då berättade hon om hur Australien gjorde av med 350 miljoner kronor för att få röster. Om hur medlemmar i FIFAs exekutivkommitté ville ha gåvor och pengar. Om hur hon fick köpa ett smycke till en medlemshustru. Om hur Frans Beckenbauer utlovade en röst i utbyte mot att en närstående till honom fick betalt. Om hur andra gamla storspelare sålde sina tjänster till högstbjudande. Dessutom beskrev Merciades om hur hon blev utfryst och sparkad när hon ifrågasatte både pengarullningen och etiken i Australiens VM-kampanj. Om hur hon blev hotad med stämning när hon ville skriva en bok. Om hur FIFA hängde ut henne när hon vittnade i organisationens rapport om hur det gick till när Qatar och Ryssland fick VM. Och hon förklarade också vilken tur Ryssland haft som sluppit granskning när Qatar fått alla rubriker. Och att FIFA inte blivit mycket bättre trots att Sepp Blatter bits ut mot Gianni Infantino. The really sad thing is these people say I love the game and I'm doing this out of the, for the good of the game. They have long ago lost what is for the good of the game. They care more about their role in the game and what they get out of it. Jag är i Dubai och träffar Bonita Merciade som har skrivit den här boken Whatever It Takes. 
Hon jobbade med Australiens VM-kampanj för att få VM 2018 eller VM 2022 och beskriver om hur det gick till när gåvor och pengar delades till de som skulle bestämma var VM skulle gå. En lite deprimerande läsning men också intressant att ta del av. Därför träffar vi henne här i Dubai där hon faktiskt köpte ett smycke som skulle gå till en medlem i exekutivkommitténs fru. Age? Wrong side of 50. Live? Sydney. Family? Yes, uh, two sons and a husband. Education? Um, at the Australian National University. Salary? I uh, don't have one. <laughs> Car? Uh, uh, Audi A1. Hobbies? Um, football, um, reading, writing, um, the computer, um, and voluntary work. Language? Um, English, uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of Greek, Serbo, Serbian, um, and French. According to you, who is the best player through all time? Oh, through all time, that's always a tough one. Um, I'd say at the moment, definitely my favourite player is Lionel Messi. Um, and all time, I mean, there's a huge debate always, isn't there, between Pelé and Cruyff and Beckenbauer and uh, Maradona. Um, so it's impossible to say. I guess you have a favourite team. Which favourite team do you have and why? Socceroos. Um, they're the Australian national team. Um, I've grown up loving football and the Socceroos are a unifying force for football fans um, in Australia. Looking back, which is the best experience you've had watching or taking part in football? There's, it's hard to separate them. Um, first one was in, on the 25th of May 1997 <laughs> when my team, the Brisbane Strikers, won the A-League, uh, well, sorry, not the, the National Soccer League as it was then, Grand Final. Uh, between a record crowd of 40,446 people, we won 2-0. Um, the second one was in um, November 2005 when we qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 32 years and we've since made the past four World Cups. That was when we um, won a playoff game against Uruguay. And the third one was at the World Cup in 2006 and we played Croatia um, in order to, we needed to draw or win to get to the second stage of the 2006 World Cup, and we did. It was absolutely fantastic. That was in Stuttgart. Which is your biggest honour, either as a player or as a leader? In football? Yes. Uh, gosh, that's a hard one. I, I think um, I was doing some voluntary work at the time for the Brisbane Strikers that I mentioned in May 1997 and um, was very much part of the team that put the whole back operations together for the team um, and for the club and it was a fantastic achievement and fantastic feeling to win that competition. Which leader in football do you admire? That's a really tough one. Um, I, I, off the top of my head, I really can't think of anyone right at the moment. Uh, the closest, I think the person who has perhaps spoken out the most at that high leadership level is Lord Treesman. Do you have a sequence of a game on YouTube or anything that you watch when you want to get in a good mood? Yes. Uh, again, the 2006 World Cup, when we played our opening game against Japan 
and it looked like we were going nowhere in that game. And uh, Hussidink brought on um, Tim Kale in the final 15 minutes or so. And we, from go looking as if we had no hope, Tim Kale scored our first World Cup goal ever. And then he scored the second. And then John Aloisi went on to score the third. And I love watching those three goals. What was your best subject in school? Um, English. What makes you afraid? Flying. <laughs> When were the last time you were really happy? Gosh, it's always hard to remember things like that. I We had a family occasion only last month when um, we got together and it was it was fun and it was nice and everybody was happy and it was for a good reason. Sometimes you get together with a with a big family group and it's not for a good reason. This one was the opposite. What's the most expensive you bought? Expensive yeah. thing I've ever bought? Yeah. Um, I really don't, I really can't, oh, a house, <laughs> a house. <laughs> What will be on your uh, gravestone? Um, know thy true self. We meet here in, in Dubai and after reading your book, I know that you also bought uh, a pearl uh, necklace here in Dubai to give to Jack Warner's wife, one of the FIFA bosses that you were trying to bribe to get the World Cup? Uh, yes, I did. It was something I was told that I had to do. Um, I did it in Dubai because on one particular trip in 2009, I had an eight or nine hour layover, a stopover. So, and I was so busy um, back in Sydney at work, I thought, oh, well, I may as well spend my time on the stopover going off to buy this pearl because we knew that where we needed to buy it from, they had a boutique in a particular mall here. So, yes, I, I have been shopping in Dubai and I did buy a pearl necklace for Jack Warner's wife. How did you think at the time? Did you know that that was something wrong? or? It was one of those unusual cases, that particular gift, because... The reason that came about was because we had hosted, the Australian FA had hosted the FIFA Congress in Sydney in May 2008, before the bidding. We knew we were bidding, but it was before bidding had started and anyone declared it. Every, there was a private dinner of the executive committee at the mansion of the chairman of our football association, and everybody who went was given a gift. The men received pearl cufflinks and the women received pearl necklaces. The value of those gifts in total was about a hundred thousand Australian dollars. Jack Warner's wife didn't go to Sydney on that particular trip, and Jack sort of circled the room, thinking, "Well, I need to get a neck one of these pearl pendants for Maureen." And ever since then, he kept asking, asking, asking about could he get a pendant. When we were bidding, and he knew that Australia was trying to make him happy, he really put pressure on through our consultants to make sure that Maureen Warner got her pendant. Fascinating. Uh, the reason that we meet is uh, this book uh, that you've written, Whatever It Takes, and it's uh, the story working on the Australian uh, World Cup bid. You, you wanted the World Cup actually from 2018, the one who's going to Russia now. That's the one you wanted, correct? Well, that's also, there's also a story in that. Um, publicly, we said that we want we we actually bid for both because if you recall at the outset, you could actually bid for both, and a number of nations did. And publicly, we were going for 2018, but privately, we always thought our best chance was 2022 because we thought that Europe would get 2018. Having said that, 
at the time when we started off, it could have been possible to get 2018 um, in what we called the Stephen Bradbury strategy. And um, Stephen Bradbury was a, an ice skater, speed skater for Australia who won an Olympic gold medal in the Winter Olympics years ago when everybody else sort of fell away. And we thought, well, if all of these other countries that are going for 2018 fall away for one reason or another, we could come through and win. So that was a strategy, but it, we did think our realistic chance was 2022. And you also got money from uh, the Australian government starting the, the process, uh, almost 50 million Australian dollars, a lot of money. How come they put up all, those, all that money? There's a number of reasons for that. It was almost, in the first part it was $46 million and then just a little bit over $46 million and then we got an extra $4 million for various things. Um, I mean, genuinely any country would like to host the World Cup. So most governments would think, yes, this is a good thing and we'll help fund it. Um, but there's all, the other element in our, inst in our case was because the chairman of our football association is an extraordinarily powerful and wealthy individual um, who is highly regarded and has a lot of credibility, has a strong reputation, and the government of the day, which is now different from the current government, but both the government and the opposition thought, well, we can't say no to this man. And if we win, we win, and that's a good thing. Uh, reading your book, you get different examples, giving money to the uh, Confederation of Oceania, uh, where you took part before, before Australia actually moved to Asia's uh, Football Federation. And um, how come, did the government know that money would go in a maybe a little bit strange way, giving money in e exchange for votes? Because, I mean, your prime minister also is taking part when you give this money to Oceania. I don't think the government at an official level would know that, no. Um, in my book I reveal you know, a conversation that I had with a very senior government official who told me many years later that his advice to the Prime Minister, and he was in a position where he advised the Prime Minister daily, his advice to the Prime Minister was don't do this because it will be brown paper bag money involved. Um, but you know, certainly from an official level, we, we wrote a strategy submission, we put forward the arguments for hosting it, we put forward the arguments for why we thought we could win. Uh, the government considered that submission, um, they gave us the money and we accounted for that money to some extent. Um, so from that perspective, um, no, I don't believe that the government would have actively thought that anything untoward was happening. When you read the book and when you've followed everything around FIFA, it's, it's like everyone's for sale. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, did you feel that way, that everything was for sale? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, um, I make the point that I didn't want to work on the bid. I was very happy working in the organisation and working on football. And, you know, as head of corporate and public affairs, I was responsible for a wide range of things. I had enough work. Um, and I always thought that the World Cup bids would not be based, the decisions wouldn't be based on merit or based on evidence. Um, it would be about funny business that went on behind closed doors. Well, one of uh, the examples that in the early process when you're thinking of bidding, the, the advice from Sepp Blatter to the Federation uh, Chairman uh, Frank Lowy uh, is to seek the advice of the Germans who had won the right to host 20, 2006 World Cup. 
and you kind of exchange. Uh, you were applying to uh, host the World Cup for women in 2011, but you kind of give it to the Germans. What is it like that? Yeah, basically. Um, that was part of the agreement. And if you, you know, look at the Garcia report, it was many, many years later. Uh, I think it was um, Theo Zwanziger actually admitted, well, yeah, the one thing that we, Germany, got out of that entire deal was we got the 2011 Women's World Cup. Um, and what that was, we, we were bidding for the 2011 Women's World Cup at the time, and we agreed to withdraw from that if Germany would help us um, with our bid for the World Cup for 2018 and 2022. So you can't even trust a, a football federation like the German? <laughs> um, I, well, certainly, look, um, if you look at... It was both Mohammed bin Haman and, and Sepp Blatter who said to us, go and talk to the Germans when we wanted to bid for the World Cup. Germany had not just been successful for the 2006 World Cup, but also 20, they were behind the success for South Africa in 2010 and they were behind the success for Abu Dhabi getting the Club World Cup. Um, so, you know, on the face of it, they knew what they needed to do to win. Um, but, you know, what, what I tr trace through my book is this relationship between key people um, related to the German FA and in Germany who have had an extraordinarily, extraordinary close relationship with, win in, with winning bids and with key people within FIFA. Uh, one of the, the guys who are involved is uh, former player great and coach great uh, Franz Beckenbauer, who uh, kind of worked for you, at least officially. He probably didn't vote for you, even though we don't know that, but uh, he probably didn't vote for you. But you paid advisors who were close to him, and he probably got a slice of that money too. Well, that's certainly the, the view. I mean, I always thought it was odd that somehow... Beckenbauer, Franz Beckenbauer was supporting our bid um, but he did from day one and we were told by one of those consultants who was very close to him and who had worked with him for many years that if we employed him, the consultant, we would have Franz Beckenbauer's vote. Um, and it was certainly the view around people in FIFA, I mean Sepp Blatter said it to me, other people, uh, senior people from other football associations said um, that he received um, some of the money that went to our consultants. I personally don't know that because I don't know what happened to the disbursement of that money, but certainly that was the perception as far up as the FIFA president at the time. You also uh, recall in the book that you meet uh, Christian Carambeau, the former player, mm -hmm. and he kind of offers to support Australia. I don't think you ever asked him what his price was, but and then a couple of weeks later he turns up for another bid. Is it like that? All those players that come out and uh, support different bids, are they bought? Um, you would have to think that they are. We certainly received lots of offers for people who would support our bid. Um, Christian Carambeau, I mean, it was he and I had the conversation personally, so I, I know that, that that's what he was offering. Um, but I've certainly seen the correspondence in relation to other players, whether it be Pelé, whether it be... Um, uh, Roger Miller, there was a whole range uh, of players that made themselves available to be ambassadors for bids. What would the cost be? Well, anything from, I, I name, um, Roger Miller was $50,000 um, through to seven-figure sums for some of the really well-known players. So like Pep Guardiola and uh, people who seen it in Sudan or who came out for Qatar, they probably received a lot of money. 
Well, obviously I couldn't say for sure because I didn't work for the Qatar bid, but I would be surprised if they didn't because they certainly, you know, people on their behalf were putting them forward to be ambassadors for bids. Uh, when you uh, read the book, uh, Whatever It Takes, you get this kind of like a, an industry uh, that kind of, of consultants who, who work the federations or work FIFA to uh, get a bid through and it's quite expensive. How much did you pay to different consultants? We had um, three key international consultants. I'll, I'll put aside the consultants we had locally who were involved in stadium design and that sort of thing because they were pretty reasonable costs. But um, we had three key international consultants who between them got around 15 million Australian dollars. Um, they were responsible for the strategy advice on our bid, for what strategy we would pursue, um, for dealing with FIFA executive committee members, for convincing them that they should vote for us, for the lobbying, uh, and for positioning our bid. And we ended up with one vote. One vote. A very <laughs> expensive one vote. Yeah. <laughs> How open were they when it came to money or gifts or anything to kind of try to get members of the executive committee to vote for you? Uh, open in terms of what they were doing, do you yeah. mean? Um, well, they weren't. I mean, they, they it wasn't, what, I, I've worked in many senior roles in, in government and in not-for-profit organisations prior to working in football, and I've worked with many consultants. Um, and what's common with consultants is they tend to over-report <laughs> rather than under-report. They're always telling you what they're doing. Um, and they report against agreed objectives and milestones and that sort of thing. None of that happened with these three consultants. It was all very much, um, it, was, it was kept behind closed doors. There was a key group that dealt with it, but there was no, no reporting. There was no, um, uh, there was no way of accounting for what they actually did. Um, so, you know, that, I guess, as well as my initial reluctance, not wanting to get involved, but being forced to work on the bid, together with knowing about these consultants that we had employed, together with the fact that they weren't actually delivering anything as far as I could see, um, it just heightened my concern more and more as time went on. There's uh, one scene where you, uh, you're giving away uh, leather wallets, famous Australian brand RM Williams, and you were given one advice what the wallets were supposed to include when they were given to the members of the executive committee. Yes, that's right. One of the uh, consultants said, had I, had I included money in the wallet? <laughs> and I really hadn't even thought of it. And um, so I, I just sort of said no and, and left it at that. When did these suspicions grow and when you understood that we're doing something that's not legal? Um, I think very early on, um, even the way that uh, the consultants were engaged, um, it just wasn't the usual way that we did things. There was no process. Um, we had government money and there was no process and that's unusual in itself. Now, my boss to, said to me at the time, oh, well, the sports minister said we didn't have to worry about that. But that is unusual. And then, you know, when the fact that we wouldn't announce who these consultants were, one of them we were happy to own up to, but the other two, it was never ever let anyone know that we had employed these people. Um, and the fact that it, it was sort of almost like a drip mechanism that you would get information that we had employed these people. And the, one, of the, one of the consultants in particular, when my boss sort of 
called me into his office and closed the door and sat me down and he said, have you heard of this person? And I said, no, not really. And he said, oh, well, you need to reread this book. And he got up to his bookshelf and took down Andrew Jennings' book, Fowl. And of course, there's two chapters on this gentleman in, in Fowl. And he said, you need to reread this because you're going to be dealing with him. It's going to be hard going and you've got to be nice to him. <laughs> um, so, you know, those sorts of things tend to raise suspicion. When you were... You have a bu two different budgets and things like that. How how much did you question uh, your boss going into this project working like that? Oh, a lot. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw that we had you, the the submission we put to government, and you know, I I had put together the submission to government, so I knew what was in it. The budget that we had sought, we had the government had cut us back just a tiny bit. But there were $17 million put aside for public relations and that sort of thing for which I was responsible. Then when uh, some months later, I get this spreadsheet, we get this spreadsheet which we're never to take out of the room, um, which had cut the budget back to $8 million. And I said, well, where's this, where's this $9 million gone? And there was no acceptable answer. Um, and it, it's a lot of detail to go into in talking about it. but. Um, it was clear to me, or it was clear to me many years later, I kept looking at this spreadsheet and thinking there's something not right here. And it was clear that we were not telling government all the information about where we were really directing the money and allocating the money, and we didn't want government to know. Um, and you know, that was a big concern. Did you get questions from journalists that you were employing these kind of infamous consultants? Uh, we did, not so much from Australian journalists, um, although one Australian journalist who lived in, U in the US actually um, rang me to warn me about them. But yeah, we started to get questions about, is it true that you're, you've employed this person? Because you know, we would be going around the world to FIFA functions as part of the bidding um, process and we'd be seen with them. So it wasn't hard to figure out that we were working together. Um, but there was very little um, questions or curiosity about the bidding process within Australia up until perhaps mid-2010. You were also fired before the bid reached its, its end, uh, eight, nine months before, uh, from the Australian Federation. How come? Uh, I think it just became too uncomfortable for everyone to have me around. I kept asking questions. I said, why are we doing this? Why are we not doing this? Why are we spending money here? I would complain about the consultants that they wouldn't do what they promised they would do. Um, I said that I, you know, I was very unhappy. I didn't think that we were going to win, um, and I was right. I thought we ran a reputational risk by having them as our consultants, and I was certainly right about that. Um, and I think it, it just became so much simpler for everyone if I wasn't around. And it was um, two months after the vote, so about 12 months after I left, that my ex-boss sort of called me up and we had a coffee and he said, he said straight out, look, I'm sorry, I had to do it because the consultants wanted you gone, they wanted you out of the way. And some of the consultants even parted with the Russians uh, uh, after the Russians got the World Cup. So. You don't really understand if they worked for you or if they, in a way, worked for Russia. And uh, because there was also talk about the 
a deal between Australia and Russia, you would support Russia 2018, they would support you in 2022. Yes, that, that was certainly happening at one stage. It obviously fell apart, um, but that was certainly talked about and a lot of steps were taken to make sure that happened. Um, and, you know, as late as on the night um, that the vote took place, our, the chairman of our FA and one of the consultants was standing outside the, FIFA, uh, the Zurich Congress Hall waiting for the Russians to arrive. And um, when they did arrive, Igor Shavalov and Alexei Sorokin and Vitaly Mutko, our chairman sort of stepped forward and put his hand out to shake their hand and they just ignored him. And that was when he knew that Australia hadn't won. Um, but that night, um, two of our consultants were seen at the Boralark smoking cigars and enjoying pre presumably expensive scotch um, with, or vodka probably <laughs> with the Russians um, celebrating. I think that's a really sad thing about all of this. I mean, there's lots that that's, um, needs fixing and lots that's tragic. But the really sad thing is these people say, I, I love the game and I'm doing this for, out of the, for the good of the game. They have long ago lost what is for the good of the game. They care more about their role in the game and what they get out of it rather than what they put into the game and what's actually best for the game. And this is where, you know, people who, fans, or ordinary fans and players who out actually do love the game really need to stand up and question these people and make sure reform happens because they get into these positions, they put on the FIFA blue jacket with the little emblem on it and they think they're someone that they're not. Uh, why do you want to tell this story <clears throat> now that you've put it in a book and uh, after you left the bid you've kind of been outspoken several times? Why, why do you think that is important? Um, there's a number. I, I actually wrote the story very early on after I was sacked and I did it more as a cathartic exercise and because Eng uh, English journalists, English writer Andrew Jennings said to me, write it all down, write it all down before you forget it. And I did that. Um, I then got threatened by my, by my FA um, when they heard that I'd written it and they threatened me legally. And I thought, well, I don't want to take on a legal fight against the richest man in Australia. So I put the book in a, in, in a drawer and didn't think anything of it. But then a number of things happened. <coughs> Excuse me. One, um, it became, there was evidence that money that we had paid to Jack Warner um, two months before the vote ended up in his personal bank account. That was no denying that happened because it was found by an independent committee. Two, I, gave, I met with Garcia um, for the Garcia report. He's the one who made a kind of like a big... The uh, FIFA investigation. Yeah, uh, investigation for FIFA. Yeah, I met with him at his request. And some months or, or more than a year afterwards, a summary report came out which basically pointed towards Australia having conducted their bid poorly but completely exonerated Russia and Qatar and then pointed the finger at the only two people in the world who'd actually said something about, about what had happened, me and the woman who was the Qatar whistleblower. And I thought, well, that's really strange because it's one thing for FIFA to get a consultant lawyer, which is what he was, to write a report saying everything was all right for Russia and Qatar. It's another thing to go that extra bit and say that these two women, um, in, in the other person's case, that she wasn't credible. And in my case, I was in trouble because I talked to the media. Um, 
and then our ch the chairman of our FA was retiring from his position as chairman <clears throat> and his role got taken over by his son <laughs> without any real election but he also made a documentary about his time um, as part of the bid and I was sat there watching it and I realised there were a number of things that were materially wrong and which they were misrepresenting what had happened. And last but not least, the full Garcia report came out. Not just the summary report, but the full Garcia. And it completely showed that a number of bidders had done the wrong thing, including Australia. Everything I had said to Michael Garcia about the Australian bid, he had found to be fact. And yet he still um, got stuck into me, criticising me for not understanding the spreadsheet, for uh, talking to the media and one other, one other matter. I mean, I, it, the three things, oh, that, that my, I didn't get things entirely right. Um, and so the three things that he said were, I, just, I thought I've got to get my story out there because he's left this as if I'm a person who doesn't get things right and I'm not that person. When he did his investigation, he kind of promised you anonymity. And still, they kind of everyone could identify you when they published. Yes, um, it's pretty easy because he said that I was Australian, I was a woman, and I was head of corporate and public affairs. There's only been one woman to this day who was head of corporate and public affairs within the Australian FA. Um, so, were you afraid when you were kind of when you lost your anonymity? Um, I, I was certainly wary, uh, afraid not so much, uh, not so much physically afraid, but I, I mean, I'd already, um, had already put up with a lot, endured a lot. I had been treated terribly by my FA since I left. They basically, they used the excuse, as people always do with whistleblowers, that I was um, um, bitter and twisted and that I had an axe to grind. They never ever wanted to engage in the issues. They only ever attacked me, per, attacked me personally, um, which is always a good, also always a good sign that what the person is saying is accurate because they don't want to talk about that. Um, I had basically any hope of employment was cut off from me. Um, Australia is a relatively small country, um, and when you've got one of the most powerful men in the country who's up against you saying, no, don't employ her, uh, it's very hard to get employment. And so basically when I left my job, um, I was still in my 40s. I had planned a, li a certain life. I had um, adult or young adult children to, to help support with my husband. Um, and all of that went. And so my life completely changed, you know, materially, financially, emotionally. You deal with all of those things as a whistleblower. So, you know, the, what Garcia did was just more grist to the mill. It was just, in, in some ways it was liberating because all, what I knew was that he found everything I said to him to be true. And so that was sort of liberating in a way, um, but it was also... Um, a period when I thought I, I have to address this issue for, for me uh, and for my family and for football. And you also, they've hacked your uh, websites and they put up fa fake websites, whoever it is now, but the, I guess someone's trying to get a hold of you or try to stop you. How have you reacted to that? 
Yeah, there's been quite a lot of intimidation like that. Um, and, you know, as, as I've said to people, I, you know, I, I think what they wanted to do was for me to go away and go ahead into a corner and curl up and die. Basically, that's what they wanted. Um, how did I react to that? Um, after you get over it and deal with the actual issue, um, you get up, dust yourself off and realise there is something that you're saying which is really frightening them and which is really upsetting them. So keep going. And that's really what drove me in the book. You know, the first part of it is my memoir of, of working on the bid. The second part of it is my investigations about what was going on. And that's what drove me to get to, to, to uncover the truth of what was going on with our bid in particular. It seems to be very hard to get hold of the truth. Uh, I mean, you have one version, there are different versions out there. Is there a truth, uh, or and what is it? I think there's only one version of the truth. Um, people will have different interpretations of it. Certainly, with with my book, everything that I have said, everything, every incident I talk about, everything I learned is absolutely truthful. And um, you know that's why I can sit here today, and we're not going to have to worry about anyone forcing their way through saying this interview shouldn't take place. Uh, I know that when you were in Germany one time in a TV show, uh, FIFA kind of in a way put pressure on the on the broadcaster and uh, made one of their persons involved. How, how was that? Um, I, that? That was another incident that related to an incident in my life more than almost 30 years ago, absolutely relevant to football, um, absolutely nothing to do with football, and they tried to say that I wasn't uh, eligible to talk about FIFA corruption. Um, and I sat there, I had a very bad translator, <laughs> um, and I sat there listening thinking, um, FIFA must be really worried that they would do this, um, that they would stoop so low. Um, to attack the person and not the ball. Um, it's very unlike, it's not what football is about. Um, but as I said um, earlier in the interview, FIFA long ago, those in charge at FIFA long ago lost what it was like um, to actually care about football and what was right for football. You know, that, that incident to which you refer, that happened before the May 2015 arrests. And here I was talking about um, systemic corruption within FIFA and the fact that it started at the top and went throughout the organisation, across the confederations, deep into member associations, I was right. And not only that, I was proven right by the FBI only less than two months later. Still, when you kind of read a lot about this and take part, it's, it's a world of smoke and mirrors. Uh, uh, it's hard to know, and you describe even here that some of the consultants and the federation, they have journalists working for their case, driving their cause. How, how is that possible? Well, um, <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, how is that possible? Uh, there are some journalists. I mean, you're a journalist, you know what it's like. It's, you, it's based on your networks and your contacts. Um, and there are some journalists, I guess, who use those contacts and pick up their stories and haven't necessarily um, questioned the veracity of them. And in a way, I can understand that if you're a day-to-day -day football journalist. You know, if you're writing about hamstrings and, um, and uh, groins and who's injured and who's going to make the World Cup squad, you don't want to be worried about football politics. It's very difficult um, to have a relationship, say, with a club or a federation on the one hand 
and also be questioning the very power structures and the systems within the whole football world. So I think it takes someone like an Andrew Jennings or a Thomas Kistner from Germany or a Jens Weinreich from Germany or the investigative journalists who are prepared to stand up and say, this needs to be looked at, this is what we're questioning. Um, it needs journalists like that to be able to hold the football world to account. But you, but you also uh, criticise uh, the Sunday Times duo, uh, Jonathan Calvert, Heidi Blake, who kind of got, they got a prize for uh, FIFA files and they wrote a book, The Ugly Game, and you, you mean, your point is that they got the story a little bit wrong, that Mohammed bin Haman, a FIFA boss or FIFA man who tried to buy his way into the presidency, not buying the World Cup to Qatar, as they write. Yes, that's right. They did, they did get it entirely wrong. Um, and I, I knew that there was... That was the other thing, in fact, that drove me to, to, to um, write, finish off the book, was reading their book and knowing that it had mistakes in it. And the basic mistake in their book is that they said that everything Mohammed bin Haman did paying money here, paying money there, was about Qatar winning the World Cup. It wasn't about Qatar winning the World Cup. It was about Mohammed bin Haman winning the presidency in 2011. And Sepp Blatter knew that. Uh, I mean, I had learned through my investigations that, and in fact, I think it's even written about in, in the Blake and Calvert book, that there was a meeting in Zurich in which Mohammed bin Haman um, withdrew from the presidency just before 2011, even before all of the issues about the, the money in Trinidad and Tobago. Now, Sepp Blatter, when I met with him, he confirmed that that happened. And he said who it was that was in the room. Um, and I think with, with Calvert and Blake and their book, they, it was almost as if they shaped what they were reading to suit a narrative rather than read what they had in front of them and followed followed the money, basically. They just didn't get the end story right. The owner of uh, Sunday Times is Rupert Murdoch, a very powerful man who also visits uh, Sepp Blatter at the FIFA headquarters, also a good friend of uh, Frank Lowy, the Australian FA uh, head. Uh, do you think Murdoch and that empire was part of this smoke and mirror world? Oh, I'm sure that sure there is a relationship there. I mean, um, Frank Lowy and Rupert Murdoch are very close and have been for years. Um, Rupert Murdoch's an Australian-American. Um, and there was, if, you know, where the book sets out the relationship between um, the Sunday Times having access to the material and uh, Frank Lowy and his private investigation, which was extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, and high-powered. It was after Australia lost yes. the bid. He, Frank Lowy, who was this billionaire also, head of the federation, he drove kind of an investigation to show that Qatar bought the World Cup. He wanted to know how Qatar won because he was convinced that Qatar bought it. And he probably was convinced that Qatar bought it because he knew what he had done to try <laughs> and win. So therefore he thought the only way you could win was to, to out, outbid them. Um, so yes, he started here very expensive investigations and uh, employing or engaging some very high-powered people, you know, including the former deputy director of the CIA, James Pavitt, who was involved with these investigations. Um, and after a time, that led them to uh, the fact that the Sunday Times had 
um, contact with the, the, the so-called Qatar whistleblower. And then they found that there was material that was available from the Asian Football Confederation. And um, Frank Lowy uh, facilitated access for the Sunday Times duo to have access to that material. And in return, they gave the picture that Mohammed bin Amman bought the World Cup to Qatar. That's certainly the picture they gave. And they also left out some key bits that was in that evidence related to Australia. And, and, and again, it comes back to Franz Beckenbauer. And in this instance, um, Franz Beckenbauer was doing the right thing by Australia. What had happened uh, was we had a, uh, it had been agreed that Franz Beckenbauer and the consultant with whom he was closest, Fedor Radman, would go to Doha to see the Emir of Qatar, to convince the Emir of Qatar to withdraw Qatar from bidding. This was in October 2009. Um, how Blake and Calvert presented that was Beckenbauer and Radman went to Doha and um, they went there at the request or at the expense of Mohammed bin Haman and they were doing a deal with Qatar. And that just wasn't the case. Uh, it was just entirely wrong. And I rang Jonathan Calvert and said, Jonathan, you've got that wrong. This is actually what happened. Now, I was in the room when this, this was discussed, not once, not twice, but three times. I know it happened. Um, that he didn't want to know. And that was when I first thought there's something really weird going on there. And I started investigating myself. Why should we believe you? Um, why should I could, if I'd brought my notebooks, I could show you my notebooks when I was in the room when it was discussed. Um, and I made a note of it. Uh, we told our foreign affairs department, the deputy secretary of our foreign, our foreign office and said that Franz Beckenbauer was going to Doha to convince the Emir to withdraw. And what we were going to offer the Emir and bearing in mind the two of the most powerful countries in the Olympics, Olympic movement are Australia and Germany through the presidency and vice presidency. Um, what we were going to offer was that Germany and Australia would give Qatar support, Doha support for their Olympics bid at the time, or if that failed, the World Expo bid, which in fact Dubai is going to be hosting. So, you know, how can you believe me? Why would I know that detail and why would I bother making it up? You know, I've been saying the same thing consistently for eight years. Are there any good people in this world? In this world, In yes. this world of football and uh, uh, politics? Um, yes, there are and there must be. And um, I, I think the disappointing thing throughout this process is that on the face of it, there are good people involved in the other bids too, but even when it was made easy for them to, or maybe they were smart, they didn't talk to people like Garcia and they haven't talked out in this process. And so it's been a very lonely journey talking out about FIFA. Um, but yes, there are individuals within football associations and within clubs who would like to see um, FIFA reformed, world football reformed, and the confederations and the member associations. 
BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Trots mycken och australiensiska miljoner till konsulter och makthavare inom FIFA-sfären blev det bara en inka röst till Australiens VM-bud. Qatar tog hem VM 2022 till omvärldens stora förvåning. Inte bara på grund av landets minst sagt modesta fotbollstradition utan även på grund av det geografiska läget med sommartemperaturer på uppemot 40 grader. Mycket riktigt så har FIFA tvingats att flytta turneringen till vintern 2022. Och med tanke på alla skandaler kring kandidaturen och kritiken mot Qatar från bland annat människorättsorganisationer så undrar man ju om mästerskapet verkligen blir av. When the FIFA executive committee is going to choose, you get one, one vote and uh, you're not even close and... I mean, Russia won and Qatar won 2022. I mean, Russia is too late to change. That will go ahead. Do you think Qatar will keep uh, the the World Cup? I mean, we're here in in Dubai in uh, in May, and uh, I wouldn't want to play soccer outside. So they've. It's kind of incredible that they could apply and that they now changed it to November, December 2022. Yeah, it's interesting that I I. You know, obviously we had this conversation um, within our workplace many times. You know, people would say, oh, don't be silly, Qatar can't host it, it's too hot in June, July, which of course it is. Although um, we've played World Cup qualifiers in Qatar and Dubai in in, um, June and July and our players have survived. But that's a one-off, not a whole series, of, uh, not a tournament. Um, What was in the bidding guidelines, and I pointed this out to my boss, is... There was a paragraph which said FIFA can change the details related to this bid and anything associated with the tournament at any time. I'm paraphrasing it, these aren't the exact legal words. At any time and it doesn't matter what you, the bidder, thinks, we can do it. And so FIFA had an out and Qatar would have known that there was an out um, and that there was that possibility to move it. So although a lot of people sort of um, jumped up and down when that first happened, Legally, there was no no grounds to jump up and down on. Uh, the chairman of of your federation, Frank Lowy, he kind of was chasing that Qatar would lose the World Cup. Do you think it, it will happen that Qatar will lose the World Cup, or do you think it will go ahead in four years? I think at this point, um, unless something ever comes to light about how. Qatar conducted their bid um, that is clearly against illegal, um, then I think that World Cup will go ahead Um, for a number of reasons. One, I think we are are almost at the point where it's 
too late to reallocate it. Um, there'd only be a handful of countries who could host it at such a short notice. So there's a practical thing there. The second thing is FIFA would, um, you know, legally FIFA are bound to Qatar and have been basically since 2 December 2010 because of the way the whole legal arrangements were around the bids. Um, and three, as I said, you know, in the absence of evidence about illegality uh, on an international grand scale, um, there, there's no appetite geopolitically to move that World Cup. But in, in your book, we can read that uh, Qatar's uh, TV station paid FIFA a bonus of $100 million and every th everybody thinks it's kind of normal. Yeah, well, they do think it's normal. And, you know, American networks have done the same in relation to 2026 as well, and everyone's ignoring that. Um, of course, Al Jazeera calls it a production contribution. And the production contribution, which you or I might call a bonus, was that if the World Cup was held in Qatar in 2022, FIFA would get an extra US $100 million. Um, likewise, if the World Cup is held in the US in 2026, uh, both Fox Sports and NBC are also paying similar production contributions. So you can see where the drive from FIFA is, or some elements of FIFA is coming to make sure that World Cup is held um, in, in the US in 2026. Uh, how was it to be a woman in this world? <laughs> uh, very difficult, um, very difficult indeed. I mean, and especially someone my age, because I, I'm not young enough or pretty enough to be sort of people that they really liked being around. Um, and I, you know, I'm not being rude there. That there was a terribly sexist environment, um, and they don't. In what way? Oh, well, I, I mean, it's the whole Me Too type movement. Um, you know, you, I wouldn't have liked to have been a young woman working around some of those, you know, older men um, that are in football. Um, they're just atrocious. What would they do? Uh, well, they're sexist. Um, they, you only have to look at. Uh, sort of sit back and observe them as they as the, the as women sort of take positions um in say a world cup tournament when trophies are being handed out and what their role is and that sort of thing i just believe that it's such a a privileged environment and i'm not talking about players here by and large you know my experience with players is they they they're really good I'm talking about administrators. By and large, there are too many people in football who don't, if they know the difference between right and wrong, they've long forgotten what it is or think they can get away with it. But getting back to me and what it was like, I think being a more mature person, uh, someone who's working at a senior role and someone who um, has that, I guess, typically Australian trait of being quite outspoken, that combination of things wasn't, wasn't popular. Looking to uh, Russia in 2018, what's your view of how they got the World Cup? I think Russia's very lucky that Qatar won 2022. Um, because what Qatar winning 2022 did was completely made everyone forget how easily Russia won it. Um, that's not to say Russia's a big country who's hosted the Olympics. They, on a couple of occasions, they clearly have the capacity. Um, but um, they won in two rounds of voting. Uh, England, England dropped out after the first round. It was then down to the three bidders and they won straight away. Even Qatar took four rounds of voting. It was harder for them to win than it was for Russia. 
And you know, you put that together with things like, uh, I know that at one stage um, there was a deal being discussed between Russia and Australia. Um, that didn't happen. Um, they, there is no doubt they would have made a deal with someone else. Um, issues such as when uh, Cornel Borbley, the deputy to Michael Garcia, went to meet with them during the, in the duration of that um, Garcia inquiry, they said they couldn't possibly help because they had leased their computers and the company they had leased them from had thrown them out. Uh, and nobody questioned this. I mean, this is, this is a country that put a dog in the moon in 1957 and yet they apparently don't know how to back up their computers from their World Cup bid. They haven't been questioned. The light hasn't shone on them. And uh, they've been very fortunate that it was Qatar that won 2022 and not sort of another country that everyone would have thought, oh, yeah, of course, they should have won. Do you have any information of what they did or who they had a deal with or? Um, no, no, I, but I think, you know, that you, you put those bits and pieces together, the fact that uh, the then Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, because Medvedev and Putin are always swapping their positions with each other, um, you know, he was sitting out in an airfield in Austria somewhere waiting for the vote to happen. He didn't even bother coming to Zurich to, to lobby like other world leaders did. Um, you had, uh, there's the story which is extraordinarily well sourced that I tell in my book of how every intelligence agency was in Zurich at the time of the vote and then all of a sudden everyone got jammed um, and the CIA knew straight away it was the FSB. <laughs> so, the Russian yeah, security. Yeah, the Russian so. security agency. Um, so no, I couldn't tell you what they did. Um, but then you look at some of the people involved, you know, their, their chairman of their organising committee was their is their finance minister. He's responsible for the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, just as the people involved with the Qatar bid are responsible for the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund. And um, they also have some oligarchs backing yeah, Abramovich. Abramovich is a big one. And Abramovich's you know, sports foundation was a sponsor of their bid and is a sponsor of their World Cup. Uh, and your guy, Franz Beckenbauer, works for Gazprom. Yes, I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Why would a gas company need an ambassador? But, yeah, Franz Beckenbauer was, uh, became an ambassador for Gazprom in around about June 2010, so before the vote happened. Um, and lo and behold, our consultants are busy celebrating with the Russians six months later. And if you look now in hindsight with... Uh, what happened in the Sochi Olympics with doping and things like that, would that alter your view of how Russia works? I think it just adds to it. Uh, I mean, I, you know, there are questions, as I, as I said earlier, Russia was very lucky in relation to its World Cup bid and this World Cup, and this is not to say they won't host a good World Cup, because um, they obviously have the capacity as a nation. But Russia's very lucky that Qatar won 2022 and took all the heat off them. After this, you've also worked for a new FIFA. Yeah, you have a website, uh, Member of Parliament, Damon Collins, among others. How has the reactions been uh, trying to get a new FIFA? Oh, it's... It's one of those things. It's like tilting at windmills. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, a, it's it's just a campaign group. It's it's uh, you know just a group of people who feel very strongly about the need for sports governance reform. Um, and we started this before the FIFA arrests, uh, you know, because we identified and it was the Garcia summary report which actually started us on this path. 
because we knew that there was something really badly wrong. Um, we've had a number of small wins, especially in 2015 when we started looking at the issue of um, the business integrity of the sponsors and how that relates to the decisions made by FIFA, both the conduct of their decisions and also decision uh, issues such as um, making a decision to host a World Cup in a country which had the kafala system as, as part, part and parcel of how their country is run. And the sponsors did start to take notice. The sponsors started to hurt from that, some of them, particularly the American sponsors and the, um, and the, the, but the Koreans, the Russians, etc. they weren't so interested in the issues. Um, we keep agitating and advocating for FIFA reform um, and it's true though that at this point all of those issues have died down a little. FIFA's done very well with their actions to date and with their PR company, um, Tenio from the US, in making sure those issues are not in the public domain so much. Yeah, how, how come uh, like sponsors, they should do more? TV companies that I represent, maybe they should do more. And also politicians, I mean the European Union. How come uh, it dies down? It's a really good question. Um, just taking each of those groups, broadcasters, it's very, it's very difficult for them. Uh, it gets back to the question too of what you said earlier about you know, the people involved in the game. People earn a living out of this. And so therefore if you're a broadcaster, um, you put in a lot of money to buy the rights and you also want to make money back, and so you don't want to upset um, the organisation that's allowing that relationship to happen. So it's very difficult um, for that to happen. And you'll recall just prior to the vote in December 2010 when the BBC ran that Andrew Jennings um, documentary. Uh, yeah. It was the panorama. Yeah, uh, and you know, it was, even the English bid team said, you know, this is, this is, terrible you know we shouldn't be doing this this is not what what this is all about uh, and you would expect that they would be holding the, up the highest principles of the rights of the fourth estate to to um, share those issues with us but they didn't so that's the broadcasters the sponsors very similar issue you know they put in a lot of money 400 500 million dollars over a world cup period and they want to get returns for it um, and particularly when you look at some of those companies involved with FIFA, they've been there for a very long time. Adidas, for example, you know, they started with Havalanche. And this is where this whole uh, system within FIFA started. It was Havalanche and Bladder. Uh, 1974, when 1974. Brazilian Havalanche took over FIFA, uh, beat the Englishman, yep. Stanley Rowe. Stanley Rowe. And uh, also Sepp Blatter came in. That's right. And there's this whole system that started then. And so they've got these very close, long-standing relationships where they will support the organisation through thick or thin. And, you know, for a while, um, the sponsors did start to get a little bit rattled, especially when the arrests happened. So there's this perfect storm in 2015. But they've settled back into those relationships now. And politicians? Politicians, you know, this is where I take my hat off to someone like Damien Collins, um, who is in the House of Commons and the chairman of the Culture, Media and Sports Committee in the House of Commons in the UK. He has been almost single-handedly unafraid to raise these issues and hasn't kept quiet on them. The European Union has looked at these issues. They've been supportive in terms of um, the need for uh, better sports governance and stamping out corruption. 
but in my own country, Australia, which everyone regards as being a very strong democracy, and we are, um, they couldn't care less about these issues. Um, no, but uh, I sometimes criticise Swedish politicians because they want to be on the, in the stand when Sweden plays a great game or when there some winner returns for the Olympics or something, but when it's something more serious, you don't see that many politicians. No, that, that's exactly right. And you'll see our sports minister will be tweeting during the World Cup about, come on, Socceroos, and all of that. But they... And we, it's interesting because we have a banking royal commission going on in our country at the moment where the banks have done terrible things to people for many, many years. Um, these are our big, successful banks. Yet, to try and engage them in a sport in which three billion people around the world play and a, um, the aggregate number of people watching the World Cup will be around 30 billion. Um, and in our country, it is the biggest participation sport for five, from five years up to adulthood. They don't want to know. They just don't care. And even the fact, the, you know, the issue I mentioned earlier, when our chairman had to retire in 2015 because he, of his term limits and it got taken over by the sun, everyone said, oh, okay. You know, I mean, this is, this is Australia. If that had been Zimbabwe, we'd all sit back and laugh and point fingers and do something about it. But, but yet we did nothing. The FIFA has a new president, Gianni Infantino. Uh, he came in under promising uh, reform and uh, transparency in all those nice words. What's your view of Mr Infantino? I think he's done what he's needed to do to keep the Swiss and the American authorities away. Um, as you, you would no doubt be aware, not long before um, the FIFA reforms went to the Congress in early 2016, um, the PR company was briefing journalists saying, well, you know, if Salman, Sheikh Salman is elected, uh, we're going to have a problem um, with the US and Swiss authorities and we have to pass these very basic reforms in order to satisfy them. And I think that's what Infantino has done successfully. Um, he's a younger, more energetic, um, uh, I guess more acceptable face for the game. He's brought in a CEO who's had no role in football before and who ticks a whole lot of equity boxes. Um, and yet the issue with FIFA is um, one of process and culture and the culture hasn't changed one iota. They've brought in some process. They can point to a policy document here and operational policies there and you know they've, they've got their committees going around doing things but the culture is still the same. And when there's an issue of process versus culture, culture is going to win every time, and that's what hasn't been addressed. He's promised to expand the World Cup to 48 teams from 2026. They're even talking about it 2022. And now he's talking about uh, a lot of money, $25 billion coming in from investors with new World Cups and uh, things like that. Do you trust him as a good uh, guardian for the game? No. I mean, none of those measures to me, um, are, I don't think, are in the best interests of the game. What it's doing is it's ensuring that Gianni Infantino has more votes from Asia and Africa and where whoever else is getting more places. Um, so it's pure politics, pure and simple. It comes from the set bladder playbook, you know, how to get re-elected 101. Um, the issue of the $25 billion coming into the game and, you know, this super European competition, again, that's not helping football. Um, and we either have a, 
a world organisation and a World Cup that is genuinely about celebrating all that's good about the game and trying to bring the people of the world together. Because I actually do think sport does have that capacity to be that powerful. Um, or it isn't that. And if it isn't that, we need to look at different structures and a different type of way of organising ourselves and being saying, well, OK, there's this arm over here that all we're going to do is be crass and, and, and make money and get the most out of people that we can possibly get. Um, and or we are actually about developing communities, having getting social inclusion, using football for the power of good, as well as entertaining people. Another change is that the, it's the FIFA members who will vote now for the World Cup in 2026. It's actually coming up on June 13th. Morocco on one side and a joint bid with Mexico, the US and uh, Canada. Who will win? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, everybody would have said, you know, 14 months ago that the United 2026 bid was a lay down Mazaire. Um, but they've got a number of factors uh, that are against them. I think both of those bids are, are good bids and they would host um, different but good World Cups. Clearly the United States bid bill, the United 2026 bid could host it tomorrow if they had to. Um, but there are political issues in America, like the American president who tends to put people off rather than turn them on. Um, and that's counting against them. And then I think, you know, on the one hand, as I mentioned earlier, if we say we point to Qatar and say we know that Al Jazeera um, played a production contribution of 100 million US dollars for the World Cup to be hosted in, in Qatar in 2022, and um, it has been reported that the United two of the United States broadcasters paid a similar level or more of a and they and they have already bought the rights for yeah, 2026 pr production contribution then you know, what's the difference here? You know, what, what have we learned? I mean, why is it not acceptable for Qatar on that basis, but it is acceptable for the United States? So I think all of those sorts of issues will be coming into play. Um, and uh, the positive aspect of all of the member associations voting is it's harder to get around and uh, I guess make the offers that they can't refuse like they did in 2018 for 2018 and 2022. But uh, as Swedes, we remember the election in 1998 between Lennart Johansson and uh, Sepp Blatter about the FIFA presidency, where allegedly uh, Blatter is supposed to have kind of bought votes with uh, envelopes, uh, with money. Uh, what stops one bid or another to kind of buy votes, but in, in a bigger... Well, that's the point. It doesn't. And, and that's, that's the issue I keep saying about process versus culture. Until you change the culture, um, that's not going to change. So there is nothing in place now. I mean, they, they, they'll have a written policy. Fatma Samura will point to, well, no, we've got a policy which says they can't do that. Well, yes, um, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to do it. And if she actually genuinely thinks that, then she's really not understanding the organisation that she's working within. Which responsibility is there on federations from countries like Sweden or Australia? Is there a special responsibility for them or...? There should be. I mean, I, I would hope that after everything that football's gone through, um, and let's, let's remember this didn't start in 2015 and it didn't start with the decisions in 2010 either. It's been going on since 1970, the 1974. Um, 
I would hope that more nations now would stand up for what is right if something like that was to happen again. Whether they would or not, I think is a million dollar question. I don't have any confidence one way or the other that that would be the case. Uh, my view is that they are cowards. They don't really stand up for what they should. Countries with the democratic tradition. No, I think that's right. And you'll recall, I think it was in 2011 when the presidential election was on and I think England, uh, the England FA led the call to um, not proceed with that presidential election at the time and, and uh, 17 countries, including I think Sweden um, and Norway and Denmark, supported England. We didn't. Um, we supported Blatter. Despite everything we knew that had happened, we still supported Blatter. Um, and you know, it is extraordinarily disappointing that countries who, you know, one, one of the issues with FIFA and one of the reasons why the culture is like it is, is because you have nations that have high levels of transparency, accountability, probity in their systems and others that are more laissez-faire, to, <laughs> to put it kindly. Um, and instead of FIFA acting as a sort of uh, opportunity to bring the bottom up to the top, um, they've allowed themselves over the years to sort of slide into this culture um, where basically anything goes. And as I said earlier in relation to the way it, it deals with some issues, if they know the difference between right and wrong, they've long ago ceased to care or they just think they're so able to get away with anything that they do that they just don't care. What hope is there for change? Um, I, a, a couple of, a few things. I think, um, one, there could be something huge happen that, that will absolutely force change and force the cultural change and, and force FIFA to fundamentally change from what we know it to be at the moment. That might happen. But probably it's more of a generational thing. And I would hope... I would hope that um, a gen the generation coming through is more attuned to the need for sport to reflect the type of society we want to have and to reflect all of the good things about sport, the concept of fair play, the concept of integrity, the concept of teamwork and sportsmanship, um, and that they will put demand on sponsors and broadcasters and their sports governing bodies in their own countries as well as Within the, within the confederations and, and FIFA itself and demand that sort of change. It can happen, those things do happen, um, but uh, anything like that doesn't, doesn't happen quickly and, and you know, doesn't happen overnight. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure, thank you. Efter att ha lyssnat på Bonita Mercedes berättelse så blev man lite upprörd med tanke på att FIFA jagat henne. Hon har ju bara berättat vad som har hänt och det är klart att FIFA kanske inte gillar det. Men man borde uppskatta någon som står för sanningen. Dessutom vill man ju tro att det ska gå att reformera FIFA. Och att det ska vara en organisation som ska stå för fair play. Men det återstår att se om det blir så. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 